Today on Tune FM, we're joined by Associate Professor Amy Likens, whose conversation article about eco-grief and the effects of climate change on the mental health of rural Fijians we recently published on our website. Thanks for coming in and joining us today, Amy. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ash. So just so our listeners have a bit of a better understanding, can you define eco-grief for us? Yeah, so there's been a lot of sort of conversation about how people might be experiencing climate change anxiety and the types of effects it might be having on mental health over the past sort of 15 to 20 years now. And it's um, growing um, in interest in research as well as sort of um, what do we do about it clinically, how do we conceptualize it, and, and various other things. And so one of the so there's been kind of a lot of discussion about do we call something eco-anxiety, climate change anxiety. Um, there's a, a concept sort of solastalgia, which is sort of the, um, the longing for a place that's lost even though you're still there. So um, that's actually at Glenn Albrecht, um, who's a philosopher here in Australia, came up with that concept looking at um, and interviewing like farmers who are watching their lands um, basically disintegrate in front of their eyes. And ecological grief is sort of related to that. So it's the the idea that you're watching a place that you are connected to, that you value, that you love, and you're watching it basically disappear and become unrecognizable. And the types of, um, the way that you interact with the land and the connection that you have to the land can really make that a lot worse. And so they, they've been looking at this, and it's related to solastalgia, which I mentioned before, but it, in, in groups who are more connected to the land. So you've got, as I said, sort of farmers, but also indigenous peoples from around the world. And, and um, yeah, and it's kind of an anticipatory grief as well. So it's looking at what you are losing now and what you are also concerned about losing in the future. Mm. Would you say that this, this eco-grief, this eco-anxiety is on the rise amongst people? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the writing about this until sort of the past five years has really been about what we predict will happen, and and maybe fairly last to sort of five ten years and before that is we think this is what it's going to look like, and then in the last sort of five to ten years, people have actually started collecting data, and so it's a pretty short time span if we're looking at you know kind of humanity at large, but. Um, to do that, to do those kinds of comparisons. But I would say that that probably the experiences of climate change have been a lot more noticeable for a lot of people in the last sort of five to 10 years, that it's sort of hard to ignore Black Summer and um, the droughts that we've had, and then followed by the massive flooding that we've had because of La Nina and, um, you know, those kinds of things. So certainly in Australia, um, there's been a lot of concern for a while. And yes, I would say that's increasing and it would be higher in some groups than others. So like I was talking about sort of indigenous peoples as well, but young people is another group that I research as well. And um, yeah, you're sort of seeing increasing concern there. And I think that like, you know, sort of thinking about young people as well, like with the um, like climate strikes or the school strikes for climate, you've got over time, like millions of young people who have you know, been involved in, in those strikes and, yeah, sort of suggesting that there's a lot of concern amongst a lot of the population. Not everybody, of course, um, and never is going to be everybody, but yeah. So in the study that you recently conducted with your colleague, Suzanne Koch, you looked at how climate change is affecting specifically rural Fijians. What uh, prompted you to focus on Fiji for this study? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So um, what what happened was in sort of 2014, I came across a few articles that was looking at they were looking at um, basically like sea level rise, right? And so it was focused specifically on like the atoll nations in the South Pacific, so like Kiribati and Tuvalu, and sort of talking about, hey, you know, these these nations are going underwater. What does that mean? What what is the the rest of the world's responsibility for that? What can we do? What you know, what can basically what can be done, right? And I found that really interesting, um, very sad, but really interesting from sort of a psychological perspective as well, like my training as a clinical psychologist, but also as somebody who has immigrated to Australia, right? So I'm from the US. I'm from the Midwest. Um, the Midwest, I mean, no part of the world is probably going to be untouched by climate change, but the Midwest is actually in the US considered to be relatively less affected than a lot of the coastal areas or like Southwest where the heat's going to be ridiculous. So I, I thought, you know, I can go home, right? So I'm from Indiana. I can go visit Indiana if I want to. I don't live there anymore. I don't have any intention to move back. But if I want to go back, I can. And so I thought, like, what does that do to your identity and your sense of self and your sense of, you know, community and culture when you can't, right? So I chose to move here. People who are living on the Atoll Islands probably aren't choosing I mean, there's some debate about that, but a lot of them may not have the choice to stay or go, and they may not be able to go back to these lands that are really important to them, their ancestral lands where their ancestors are buried and, and really meaningful lands for them. So I thought, you know, from a like clinical perspective, like what does that do to your sort of sense of identity and your culture? And so I got really interested in, in that. And at the time, our head of school, or I think he maybe he had just left, um, Patrick Nunn, who's the head of school at BCSS ages ago, um, had he had come from Fiji and had really strong connections to Fiji because that's where he did a lot of his work. And so I approached him about this idea and I said, hey, I'm really interested in this. Like, you know, what what might we be able to do? And so we we kind of developed this idea about could because he had the kind of connections that you would need to be able to do this research in Fiji, we sort of targeted there. And because like there was sort of research fatigue in the Kiribati Tuvalu areas because they'd gotten a lot of media attention, maybe go to some of the, the islands that are sort of less investigated because they're suffering similar kinds of things a bit more under the radar. And so, yeah, we developed this project and um, went and collected data in 2015, right after the huge hurricane that sort of destroyed parts of Vanuatu went through. Like literally, we were flying like, just after it, um, which I found really interesting because when we were asking about sort of weather and climate and stuff, and they, like Fiji got wind and rain and stuff, and they had the sort of hurricane boards up on the windows, but like, it didn't really come up in the interviews, which I fully expected it to of like, you know, what what are you noticing anything going on that feels different or you know whatever and that didn't come up at all <laughs> yeah that that's really interesting are you going to sort of expand um the focus on this you know maybe talk to other indigenous groups from australia maybe in america or are there studies looking at that as well at the moment yeah um look i'd really like to it's um it's challenging because you've got to have exactly the right sort of connections to be able to do this work and i don't want to come in you know a bunch of white american australian people sort of um not 
like meaningfully interacting with with communities and sort of understanding what their sort of needs and desires are. So um, it would have to be under the right circumstances. But I do have a connection here who um, shout out to Samson um, at <laughs> Rose Baron, who helped with some of the translations for this, who's got good connections with Fijian families who live here. And I'd be really interested in following up mm. with them and sort of understanding their experiences as being relatively protected from a lot of the um, the challenges that the the villages are going th- through in Fiji, but still having those family connections and those cultural connections there. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'd be very open to that and um, very interested in um, Indigenous Australian communities as well. Um, there has been other research in North America and um, Canada. So there's there's a woman who's done a fair amount of research with like Canadian Inuit um, populations and like all the sort of um, indigenous peoples of the circumpolar north, including like the Sami people. And that's like it was sort of her group, Ashley Consolo, who I think developed the idea of eco grief and was looking at that. And of course, it's a very different experience. So when you're talking about the people of the ice and snow, right? Mm. And so the types of cultural practices that they are not able to to do as much anymore because the ice is melting are obviously very different than what you're looking at in the, the Pacific Islands, but similar kinds of experiences of watching these lands and these um, cultural practices and things that you value just become impossible to do. Um, and the, the grief and worry and stress that sort of comes along with that. Yeah. So how do we provide adequate support to people who are experiencing this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the main, one of the main things, and I want to share this as broadly as possible, is like we really do need to reduce our emissions. Mm. Um, We really do need to, um, you know, make more of an effort. And and I don't want to blame, like, I don't want to put the blame on, individuals, right? So I'm, I'm working on some book chapters right now where we're looking at sort of planetary limits and how much of the focus has been on, you know, you need to cut down your individual emissions and, you know, the kind of responsibility that gets placed on people who are sitting within structures that they didn't have any um, any facility to create. So for example, um, you know, cycling, but if there aren't any bike lanes, or I want to use public transport, maybe I don't have access to it, or, or whatnot. So like there's, and you know, if you look at sort of the, the genesis of the carbon footprint and how BP sort of ran with that and was like, it's all on you, while well, they can just ignore <laughs> all of the emissions that they're digging up, you know, out of the, the earth's, out of the earth. Um, so, you know, it, it needs to be both, right? It needs to be, yes, we do need to individually work on reducing our emissions, but like governments, corporations, institutions need to to pull their weight as well. So I think that's that's a main thing um, to try and prevent, you know, the worst of um, warming that we may experience. Um, specifically for the, um, the indigenous Fijian population that we, we worked with, there seems there appears to be sort of a, a pretty significant gap in sort of mental health needs versus what's available to them. And there's some researchers at UQ that have kind of picked up on this as well and sort of saying, like, we need to strengthen mental health systems in that area. And that's across the South Pacific. Now, importantly, that can't be, again, white people coming in with sort of Western understandings of mental illness and, um, 
you know, not looking at that through a culturally responsive lens and, uh, you know, providing appropriate support. But that that would be helpful for people who are experiencing a lot of distress. Um, and yeah, just I think more more awareness that this is an issue and that this is something that people are suffering from and, you know, providing validation for that as well as like, you know, opportunities for activism, say, and that that can be helpful for some people as well, where they feel like, hey, I can actually do something like I can't solve this on my own, but I can at least do this. And so, yeah, kind of figuring out sort of what you can do and what you want to do and and being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. So you mentioned that a lot of the responsibility is being put on an individual in terms of reducing emissions. How does that contribute to people's anxiety and stress surrounding climate change, being told this is your responsibility? Yeah. <laughs> a lot, as it turns out. Yeah, so I've got, I've got colleagues in the US who do climate-aware therapy, and that's, um, that's a, a major topic of conversation in clinical practice for people who are worried about the future and, and climate change and the planet and things like that, is that it does, you know, if people... Are, are, are willing to own, you know, what they do, that some of them will kind of go to the extreme and say, well, I'm just not going to leave the house, right? Because anything that I do is going to contribute to carbon emissions. And like, that's, you can't have people just staying in bed all day, right? Like, that's not good for mental health and well-being. And it's not really going to help the problem either. So, you know, yeah, like, it's, it's had a, a consequence in, intended or unintended, basically put a lot of pressure on the individual that, again, is sitting within a structure that, like, they didn't create. So, you know, we have a very car-based system. We have people living all over the place and, you know, in regional areas. And, like, what are your options? (laughs) You don't have any good options, right? You're going to drive yourself or you're going to fly if you happen to have an airport nearby. We don't have a good train system here. Europe does that better, of course. Um, but the U.S. doesn't. Like, we have trains along the East Coast, and that's really about it in any meaningful way. So, you know, you've got you've got systems that are surrounding people that, like, make it hard. And so I think there needs to be a balance of, like, yes, we, we should do what we can do, but and, and push, you know, if you're so motivated, push to, you know, make things better. But recognize that, like, there just are limitations. There are logistical problems. And I've had conversations with my colleagues here about electric cars, right? So wouldn't it be great to get an electric car? Well, if I don't have the range to get anywhere, <laughs> um, that's not going to be useful for me. And and then they, like, you see articles about, oh, range anxiety, right, of, you know, rural populations. And it's like, that's very easy for you to say, living in cities, that literally like can i get from a to b without having to stop and if i have to stop do i have anywhere to charge the car right so like the systems the structure just in some ways is not set up for you know sort of ideal um behavior change if that's what you know you want to do and i think that that should be recognized and should be addressed but it, again i don't control where the charging stations are placed right and so who do we talk to about that and how can we sort of effect change in that way, but also not, you know, feeling really guilty that I have a, you know, carbon emitting car, right? So. Yeah. We're cogs in a system. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, it's a relevant position to be in. It's not to say that like you can't do anything. We can do things, but like, 
I don't think we should also take full responsibility for that as well. Like it's not, that's not healthy and it's not realistic either. Yeah. So I wanted to circle back. You mentioned making meaningful connections when it came to talking with indigenous groups um, and how we needed to approach clinical psychology and, you know, mental health help from a culturally informed position. How can people within that space, whether it be, you know, social work, psychology, anything like that, how can people forge those meaningful connections? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's something that we have been focusing a lot in our clinical program here at UNE and becoming more culturally responsive and understanding different um, different presentations of, say, mental illness or um, having a better understanding of sort of like backgrounds of generational trauma and those kinds of things. So I think at least like from my in my job um, as, you know, an educator, like we just, you know, put, put a lot of that information along with the information that, you know, we'd be teaching as well. So like I teach um, basically clinical diagnosis. So it's, you know, these are the diagnostic criteria for this particular disorder. This is how it might come across. If you're dealing with somebody from a different cultural background, you may want to look at things differently and, and, you know, not overinterpret, but not underinterpret, and um, have have enough of a sort of knowledge background to be able to understand and appreciate that things might look differently. They might come across differently. You're interpreting it through your own lens. They're experiencing it through theirs. How, you know, how do you sort of make that connection? Um, so I think education is is a big place, a good place to start, anyway. Um, and yeah, I mean, meaningful engagement with, say, groups like Arala, if you've got something like that available to you, um, as we do at UNE or other groups to, to forge those connections and like meaningful interactions. So not like, and, and co-design, right? So a lot of co-design of like, hey, I've got this question, I'm interested in this. Can we work on that together? Um, and you need to do the same thing with young people, right? Of like, um, if you're not gonna, if you're not going to meet them where they are, they're not going to do what you want. You know, this it's not going to get you the information that you want. So, I think um, I think that's been a lot bigger focus in research and clinical practice as well over the last you know decade or so to to meet people where they are and like work on problems together rather than kind of seagulling in. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And I suppose finally, for people out there who are experiencing this anxiety surrounding climate change, what can they do to self-help or, or self-manage those feelings? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's it's really where the field is going right now is trying to figure out what is going to be the most effective way to support people. And there's been a lot of awareness rising of, hey, there's likely to be these issues and oh hey, we are finding these issues, and now we're at that stage of what do we do? And um, so I can't can't give you an answer because we're really yep. in sort of the beginning stages. But you know, I think there are a number of things that can can be helpful. So like as I mentioned before, activism can make people feel like they're you know contributing positive things towards um, addressing these issues. Um, beware of activism burnout <laughs> um, because, you know, in recognizing that climate change is such a huge 
global problem that like you as an individual are not going to be able to solve it collectively. Like we've got more voice, right? So, you know, working in groups, you know, working with people that you um, find a sort of thinking along the same lines as you in terms of what you value and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I think, yeah, taking, taking breaks, going out into nature, right? So like we're, you know, really lucky in Armadale to be surrounded by some beautiful parks and bushland and, you know, reconnecting with, with green spaces. Um, if you've got those available or blue spaces down at the coast and, you know, you don't value what you don't see. So it's, yeah, kind of um, getting getting out back out into nature, getting kids out into nature and getting them to value it as well. Um, and, you know, if you really are struggling and you feel that you need to talk to somebody, trying to find a therapist who understands these issues and maybe has a sort of climate-aware approach, and that's, that is growing um, across the country and across the world. Um, and, you know, if you need help mental help you know mental health assistance like try you know try to find it i'm not saying it's easy like mm-hmm. we have a huge need particularly in regional areas that is unmet but um i would say that one i guess positive consequence of covid is that um, telehealth became much more popular and and you know we can bill it now with medicare so you don't you're not stuck with the people who are available to you physically you can meet with people from all over the country and maybe that helps like find the right fit and somebody who may have you know space on their wait list to take you um yeah and just be kind to yourself really like these are big big problems that we're all sort of working on and trying to fix and all suffering from and yeah just sort of recognizing that like you know collectively like we're all in this together and taking some solace from that Thank you so much, Amy, and thanks for coming in and chatting with us about this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For anyone out there who may be affected by this topic, if you're struggling, you can reach out to Lifeline on 131114, Counselling and Psychological Services here at UNE on 6773-2897, or the Clinical Psychology Team at the UNE Medical Centre on 6773-2916.